This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of August 28th, 2017. On this week's show, Jason Gay of The Wall Street Journal will join us to talk about watching the Mayweather-McGregor fight while high, and I will join us to talk about watching the fight on an illegal in-arena stream in which a guy in the crowd shouted, there it is, every time Mayweather landed a punch. We'll also speak with Fox Sports baseball reporter Ken Rosenthal, about his decision to join the new sports media venture, The Athletic. And Robert Lipsight will be here to discuss ESPN's move to reassign a broadcaster named Robert Lee, who is scheduled to do play-by-play for a University of Virginia football game, as well as the broader accusation that ESPN is too damn liberal. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak, and a few seconds of panic. And I think he was the guy shouting, there it is. It's possible. On my Periscope stream possible say there it is i'll i'll be able to tell there it is close close was the accent there was he highlighting the there emphasizing there or the it was definitely emphasizing the there okay yeah maybe a little bit more inebriated than you are there this it morning is. there we go that's that's my stefan on saturday night in las vegas boxer floyd mayweather beat non-boxer conor mcgregor in a boxing match by 10th round tko which means that the ref stepped in and stopped the fight when McGregor was getting punched in the face a lot. The 40-year-old Mayweather, who is now 50-0, and an undefeated mark that's one win better than heavyweight Rocky Marciano's longstanding record, said after the fight that he's retiring for good, this despite just getting a payday in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So expect him to fight again in the next couple of years, maybe against McGregor, maybe against a hologram of Screech from Saved by the Bell. Um, anything that can get him... That's sweet, sweet nine figures. People will pay for the Screech hologram Mayweather fight. McGregor, who is also going to get paid in the neighborhood of nine figures for this most recent fight, did not look like he'd suffered all too badly. uh, And his reputation certainly didn't take any hits. 
the Irish mixed martial artist who'd never before boxed professionally ended up landing more punches against Mayweather than Manny Pacquiao did two years ago. Writing in the Wall Street Journal, Jason Gay described the fight's charitable afterglow of that wasn't as terrible as I thought it would be. The folks in Las Vegas' T-Mobile Arena and those watching at home were less happy customers than not unhappy customers. And isn't that the best we can hope for in 2017? Joining us now is Jason Gay, who was not unhappy while watching the fight because he'd just eaten some marijuana edibles he purchased at a legal weed dispensary as part of a piece for the journal, which is best described as fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Dad gets high in an extremely daddish way. Hello, Jason. Oh, uh, where were you when I needed a headline writer yesterday? Uh, thank you. Yeah, man, that's what I did. I went the full Dad Express gummy bears to the fight uh, Saturday in Vegas. And it was, as you described, something more than a pillow fight, but not exactly Ali Frazier. What was the scene like in the arena um, based on the really crappy stream that I was watching on <laughs> on uh, Periscope. It was kind of yeah. hard to tell what the mood was, but it seemed like a lot of white people wanted McGregor to win. Yeah, it seemed to break down along those lines, didn't it? Um, it? It was something less, I would say, than the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight, which was the other big fight of the century before this fight of the century. Uh, I don't think it was as star-studded. It wasn't sold out, which was kind of astonishing. There are approximately 5,000 or so unused seats in the arena that were kind of surreptitiously um, cloaked in the high levels. Um, myself, I was at some high levels, so I'm not exactly the uh, greatest um, uh recorder of every moment of the event but i would say you know there's something always a little just ham-handed about this event i mean you know it didn't make any sense from a sporting event standpoint to put one of the greatest fighters of all time in against a person who had never fought professionally uh however it just sort of achieved this kind of as you said um non-disappointment uh, vibe by the end that it wasn't as terrible as we thought it would be and to me that kind of feels a little bit like a um cultural statement right mcgregor looked like he was wearing a diaper first of all second yeah. of all the part about the not being as terrible as we thought it would be is entirely attributable to mayweather he decided to allow it to be not as terrible as we yeah. thought it would be, because he didn't yeah. do anything for the first yeah. six rounds. Yeah. He kind of yeah. just stood there. He let McGregor hit him <laughs> on the back of the head a bunch of times, and the referee <laughs> didn't stop that. Let McGregor tire himself out. Yeah. He let McGregor, he turned his butt into McGregor and it looked like they were spooning <laughs> five or six times, which was really touching, I thought. Um, you know, Stephen, the Irish who watched, Stephen, let me interject by yeah. saying Stefan, who watched the fight on a uh, YouTube uh, video the next day that was subsequently taken down. So. Fortunately, not taken down before the 10th round. So I was able to watch the entire fight. Um, and at the end, I don't know who, which of the announcers it was. I think it was Brian. Who was it? Brian Kenny was doing it. I think he said McGregor boxed beautifully. One of them said McGregor <laughs> boxed beautifully, which was hilarious because McGregor didn't really, he just kind of, he had a good shuffle. He liked that shuffle where he moved from his right foot leading to quickly pivoting to his left foot, which looked very dramatic. 
I, you know, listen, I'm with you. I feel like people saying McGregor boxed well or being a little overly charitable. Mayweather definitely, you know, carried him. I think in those first rounds, he was just feeling him out, feeling his power. Um, I don't think he ever hurt Mayweather in the slightest. Um, and, uh, you know, that was a skillful performance by Floyd Mayweather in terms of, you know, lengthening the bat, making it seem maybe more competitive than it was, and then bringing the hammer when he needed to, when he really could have brought it any time over the last five to six rounds. Well, as Barry Pacheski pointed out on Twitter, Mayweather carrying McGregor and carrying the fight is indistinguishable in many ways from how Mayweather usually fights. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and that is uh, true. I mean, he's always been a defensive, counterpunching kind of boxer. And I think another part of why people thought this was a somewhat satisfying uh, television event was that Floyd Mayweather suddenly went on the offensive. He was in the center of the ring dictating the flow, uh, being the aggressor in the latter rounds. And that was not something that was you know characteristic of his prime. Uh, so, yeah, you saw something a, a little different out of him. So, again, you know. Diminished standards that we live in today, 2017, no. but, uh, you know, perhaps not the worst 99.95 ever spent. There is a risk, I think, in kind of focusing on the circus atmosphere here and just how silly the whole thing was that we forget just how awful a human being Floyd Mayweather is. Mm-hmm. And I think McGregor, you know, used homophobic slurs in the lead up is like certainly not a pleasant guy and is like maybe even an awful guy who knows but he is just like standard issue just like shit talking awful like fighting sport dude but Mayweather is just like such an execrable human being like all of the domestic violence stuff that he's gone to prison for um did you think about that as far as like how you were going to cover this fight did you at all think about not covering it like what was your is that why you chose to get high (laughs) i mean i mean you know to be serious i mean i think uh getting stoned before the fight was probably giving the fight the respect it deserved uh as a sporting event uh as for the very serious um you know charges against mayweather and what he pled guilty for in 2017 and did 60 days in in jail uh, absolutely, it was part of our coverage. It was something that we wrote about leading into the event itself. I was wondering at certain points why it didn't manifest into the big issue that it became before the Pacquiao fight. Um, if you remember, there was an issue about credentialing. Some uh, female journalists uh, were not credentialed to the fight and walked out. And there was, you know, there was a, quite a great deal of um, discussion about that leading into it. I wondered why it wasn't. Uh, as big a conversation point for this one, maybe because of the lack of seriousness for which this was taken in general. I don't know. Um, you know, Floyd Mayweather is obviously somebody who, as you said, has this, you know, there is this history here and it's incredibly regrettable. And I also think that it contributes somewhat to, I don't want to say an airbrushing, but sort of the financial elements of Floyd Mayweather always, you know, he's money Mayweather. They talk a lot about why he is, you know, so economically driven and why he's such a great entrepreneur. And I think part of what that conversation obfuscates a little bit is the fact that he's pretty untouchable as a sponsored athlete. You know, it's not like Ford Motor Company and Nike are like clamoring to sign up Floyd Mayweather. You think about it. It's like he's an American 
boxing champion. He's incredibly handsome. He's undefeated over the course of his career. He seems incredibly attractive as a potential sponsor. And outside of a handful of brands like, I think he does Hublot watches and so on, he's not doing a lot of that kind of thing. And I think that accounts for why there's this sort of counter strategy of Floyd taking a piece of everything and Floyd, the great entrepreneur. And yet here we are that people were willing to book this fight. People were willing to pay for this fight. People were willing to attend this fight. I mean, culturally Mayweather is execrable, but so is the boxing public. I mean, this is just the sewer of sports and there's really no, Getting around that and what Mayweather did, you know, whether his proclamations of I'm retiring or not were genuine after the fight, what Mayweather did was ensure that there could be, if he wants it, a market to do this thing again. Absolutely. No, I think unquestionably, especially, you know, the things that the guys were saying, you know, in terms of being complimentary of each other's gifts afterwards, the fact that McGregor kind of ludicrously argued that the referee stopped the fight prematurely, you know, setting up this narrative of like, oh, oh, you know, maybe if he had just been able to like get punched in the face three more times, we could have had a more competitive ending. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, and to your point of like just the general uh, atmosphere around professional boxing, I mean, this is par for the course. This is what happens. And, um, you know, I would say true boxing fans might disagree with you a little bit on, you know, the the ugliness overall and that there is a great deal of excitement in the boxing community about the September 16th fight between Gennady Golovkin and Canelo Alvarez, which is a much more sure. legit champion V champion boxing match in uh, Vegas. Uh, but yeah, you know, listen, this is, you know, we are generations in into boxing's sure. uh, unsavory uh, surroundings. Yeah. And I think that it is reasonable to say that like, there's no bottom well or is there like really a reasonable argument to be made about like you know we this is this is a sewer we can't have rats fighting in the in the sewer (laughs) i mean it's boxing like there's no there's no way to like sully boxing it's impossible it's unsullyable (laughs) um where do you think that mcgregor goes from here obviously it makes no sense for him financially or for any other reason to like fight, uh, you know, to box someone who isn't Floyd Mayweather. But there is a certain like, I don't know if like regression is the right word, but what could he do from here that could bring him like the increase in money and fame that he will surely want? He could fight a bear. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think he's going to have to take a pay cut. Wherever he goes, uh, I think that MMA, you know, UFC, not accustomed to uh, eight-figure, much less nine-figure paydays. Uh, I think McGregor might uh, get a $10 million check somewhere down the line from UFC for fighting. Uh, there was discussion of whether whether or not this guy would become a movie star. You know, could you turn him into a Jason Statham, you know, Dwayne Johnson type action hero? Uh, the fact that UFC is owned by the William Morris Agency now is fuel for that conversation. Um, I think you will have options, and I don't think he lost a great deal reputationally on Saturday, so that will add to it. Had he won, you know, the world would have been his. Uh, this will require a certain degree of recalibration, but that's not such a hard thing to do if you're counting 
buckets and buckets of cash. I think from the start, it was going to be ensured that no one's reputation, such as they were, um, would be damaged inside their sports from this event. Yeah. If Mayweather wanted to knock him out in the first round, he probably could have. But that would have been bad for everybody. Um, and I just want to conclude, Jason, by reading an email from a reader that you tweeted this morning about your oh, piece yeah. about getting high. Um, I've been reading the WSJ for 20 years. This is unequivocally the stupidest, most inane article I have ever seen published. What sad disgrace. My opinion of the editor is greatly diminished, but not the writer. So I think you come out of that looking pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, at first I thought it was for my mother, um, but after that, uh, listen, you know, we we uh, uh, can't win them all uh, in the journal, and I'm happy to win, um, you know, at least one title for this story, so uh, I'm grateful for the uh, reader's readership. Jason Gay is a writer for the Wall Street Journal. Check out his article uh, in the paper, which I have helpfully headlined. Fear and loathing in Las Vegas, dad gets high in an extremely daddish way. Thank you, Jason. <laughs> Thanks, gentlemen. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to Ken Rosenthal and The Athletic, a heads up that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Ken will stick around to gab with us about Giancarlo Stanton, who's hitting lots and lots of home runs for the Miami Marlins. 50 as of this moment, maybe 53 by later tonight. If you want to hear that conversation, please join Slate Plus for just $35 a year or $5 a month. If you do, you can get a Slate tote bag plus bonus segments on this and other Slate podcast every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. In April, ESPN laid off around 100 staffers, including longtime hosts and reporters. In May, Sports Illustrated continued a gradual bleeding of talent that began several years ago. In June, Fox Sports fired its online writers and editors as part of a pivot to video. In July, Vice Media, well, you get the idea. There are plenty of clear business reasons for this downsizing from cord cutting to falling ad rates, but turmoil sparks innovation and an intriguing sports media development is The Athletic, a subscription-only national sports site that not only is hiring a lot of that laid-off talent, but also testing the proposition that fans and readers will pay for coverage of their favorite sports teams. Ken Rosenthal is one of The Athletic's big-name hires. He is keeping his TV gigs with Fox Sports and the MLB Network, but he has taken his scoop-breaking and feature-writing talents to the new site, and he joins us now. Hey, Kenny. Stefan, how are you? Good. Look, we've known each other for years since uh, I started at Penn and you were a sophomore. Your career pretty much encapsulates the changes in media in the last four decades. You went from a newspaper that looked like it was laid out in 1880 to covering a baseball team for a newspaper that published only in the afternoon to writing newspaper columns to blabbing on the radio to moonlighting on TV to breaking news on Twitter. For you, this is kind of the next iteration. But what strikes me about The Athletic 
is that it's really an old model, local sports coverage that people have to pay for in order to read. That's true. And if you think about it, you pay for the newspaper. So why wouldn't you pay for content in other ways? And I think that's the logic here. Now, Stefan, that was a great introduction. You missed only one thing. The paper that was laid out in the 1880s in York, Pennsylvania was not my paper. That was the competition. Oh, that was the competition? All right. But I wanted to make that correction. But seriously, about the athletic, yes. And it is different for sports fans to have to pay for their content. ESPN has done certain things behind the paywall, but by and large, this is not something that has been done. And I do understand anyone out there who might feel uncomfortable or kind of weird about it. But at the same time, as you said, the free sites, the so-called free sites, ESPN, Fox Sports, right down the line, they're not giving you that content anymore. So it's not available in a free way. Now, it's available in other places, baseball content on MLB.com. You can look many places. But what The Athletic is offering or trying to offer is a little bit of a higher level. And some of the people they've hired are just outstanding. Stuart Mandel on college football. He's running the college football site, which has a number of writers, including Nicole Auerbach. They've got Seth Davis ready to do the same thing on college basketball. You know Seth from Sports Illustrated, CBS. So this is not a venture being taken upon lightly. We understand, every one of us, that if we're going to charge people for content, that you better provide good content. And beyond that, the thing that I like about this and is appealing beyond simply reading writers like Seth and Stuart and Nicole is that it's a clean reading experience. You don't have pop-up ads. You don't have surveys you must answer to get to the content. You don't have all this stuff going on on the screen that kind of drives you crazy. So in an interview with um, the Stratechery newsletter, that's a subscription thing run by uh, Ben Thompson. It's really interesting. I would advise people to, to check it out. It's an interview with Alex Mather, the CEO of The Athletic. And the first question that Ben asked was what the elevator pitch was for The Athletic. And his answer was that it's local sports writing for diehard fans. And we focus on content you can't get anywhere else. And that's really what The Athletic started out as with these sites in Cleveland, there's one in Toronto. What are some of the other Bay cities? Area, Chicago, Detroit? But, um, you know, you can, and then you also mentioned Stuart Mandel and Seth Davis. You guys are national writers. And so my question is, how does that fit in to what um, The Athletic is doing? And do you have the sense that people are willing to pay for national voices when the kind of work that you're doing which is great, is, you know, there are other places that you can read about, like, national baseball stories. You can read about it on ESPN or, or Yahoo or Sports Illustrated. Josh, you're certainly right about that. I would hope that people who have followed me over the years and read me over the years see me as a little bit different. Maybe not even a little bit different. Maybe a lot different. And for that, along with all of this other stuff you get, it's worth that price. It's a fair question. I don't know the answer to it. We're going to find out. I will say this. The response on Twitter, which is, of course, not a, a complete sample, but I expected when I announced this that, I don't know, maybe half the people would say, I'm never paying. Get out of here. And half would say, OK, fine. 
the response was pretty positive. Now, I don't have the numbers in front of me. I don't know how many actually subscribed, but really only a handful of people objected. And again, I'm not going to argue with anyone who objects, but you're getting our hope, better coverage, as as well as a better reading experience. And I would say that take myself out of it. I would pay to read Seth Davis. I would pay to read Stuart Mandel. And these are guys that are not your average run-of-the-mill content producers that you can find somewhere else. They're better. And that's why the hope is, along with the city coverage, which is excellent as well, you get your dollar's worth. You know, what's interesting to me, Kenny, is that it's not just people that were put in positions where they needed to find something different to be able to do what they love to do which I think was the case with you. You love writing, as you wrote on The Athletic. I got into this to write. You never imagined you'd be, like, spending half your day tweeting. But what's interesting is that people are leaving established media companies to join ventures like this. And so if Tim Kawakami and Marcus Thompson are leaving the San Jose Mercury News to go to a startup like this. I think that's not just a reflection of, hey, maybe there's an opportunity here to make a little more money and try something different, but that I'm worried about the fate of these traditional media, sports media outlets. Well, that's a strong statement, Stefan, that Tim Kawakami was willing to leave the San Jose Mercury News as as well as others to join The Athletic. And it's not necessarily more lucrative financially. It's a step toward a better future. In fact, I will say this. I believe that had I gone to other places, I could have gotten more financially. But there is a strong belief among us that this is the future, that this is the way it should go, that we want to be associated with each other, with a great editor, Paul Fichtenbaum, who was the chief content officer, and oh, by the way, was the editor-in-chief of Sports Illustrated for many years. This is appealing to all of us. It's appealing to speak the same language to an editor like Paul, to understand that it's not necessarily going to be about clicks and clickbait. It's going to be about quality. And we believe that people will follow because people do want to read. And as you said at the outset, Stefan, what has happened with the pivot to video by many sites, it's not necessarily related to reading habits. It's more related to how money is made on the internet. And I can't fault Fox for wanting to make money on the internet. That's their goal. That's their job. But at the same time, they were good enough to let me pursue another writing venture. And perhaps there is this way to do it and have writers who are still functional (laughs) and still contributing the way they have in the past. Yeah, I think that what you said about how this is a model that appeals to writers and hopefully to readers makes a lot of sense that for folks like us, we want to live in a world in which something like The Athletic works. And if it works, it's a validation, I think, of what you've done in your career and what a lot of these other folks that you're partnering up with have done, and that is to do thoughtful work that um, is, you know, a cut above or different than what you might find elsewhere. If it doesn't work, then that could be for a lot of reasons. It's not necessarily because people hate reading or because um, the 
winds have uh, blown in a in a different direction. But there are examples, you know, going to the National and Grantland of places that were kind of conceived of and for a time were these like, you know, Shangri-Las of sports journalism and didn't work out. So less a question there and more just that I'm praying that it, that it works and succeeds. No, you're right. And those are great examples you just cited, Josh, that we did see those sites as Shangri-Las and havens, whatever description you want to use. The difference here is you do have to pay. It's not a traditional internet site. Now, there are going to be obstacles. There are going to be bumps in the road. I fully expect all of that. And who knows where it all leads? And maybe it doesn't work. And maybe really sports writing as we know it is not going to be what it once was in 10 years, five years. I don't know the answers. I do know that I like this solution and that this solution very much appealed to me. And when I became a quote unquote free agent, this one excited me the most by far. And I could have gone to more traditional sites, but I just felt the quality here and the idea was so appealing that I could not resist it. Well, and the the great thing about it, frankly, is that it's another outlet, you know, at a time when sure. there is there is all of this turmoil in this industry, as in pretty much every media industry. At least there are people trying to innovate and there is venture capital money out there to allow um, things like this to get off the ground and see if it works. Because if the traditional model that ESPN has profited greatly from over the last 30 years um, doesn't work anymore, subscriptions from, you know, from, from cable subscribers and ad revenue, if that doesn't work, you know, we're screwed. I mean, sports writing in a lot of ways is screwed. I mean, look, there's still going to be places inside traditional media that are able to, to, to function um, at a profit. But unless someone comes up with some new models, yeah, there are going to be fewer outlets. Can I also writing. just interject that it's telling to me that a bunch of the names that we've mentioned so far are folks that were at Sports Illustrated and are no longer at Sports Illustrated? Yeah, no, that's, that is telling. And two of us came from FoxSports.com. So... Sure, this is a new place for those of us who have been dislodged, for lack of a better phrase. And Stefan, you're right. If the world crumbles as we know it and things change to the point where it's so different, it's unrecognizable, that might be the way it goes. But the basic idea here is that people still want to read. I strongly believe that that is the case. I am convinced that that is the case, just based on people who have reached out to me on Twitter. And again, it's not a <laughs> totally representative sample, but I know that there is a slice of, a percentage of people who follow me and watch me or whatever who want to still read me. Now, the question is, how do you make that viable for the long term? How do you make it so writers can still earn money, et cetera? That's what everyone's trying to solve, and we'll see if this experiment works. Two final thoughts from me. Number one, subscribe to Slate Plus, slate.com slash hangout plus. I'm expecting you to, uh, you to subscribe, Ken. Number two, okay. um, I think it was smart to start this off as a local sports venture. There um, are examples, like you can look at 
um, DK uh, Pittsburgh Sports.com, Bob McGinn, the, the Green Bay guy, just started one. There are a bunch of examples of this working. And so I think starting it out as, you know, getting guys like Jason Lloyd and the folks in the Bay Area that we've mentioned to, um, you know, serve that audience that is hungry for strong content about the teams that they like, I, I think that was a smart play. And then to get folks like Ken and, and Stuart and Seth to come in to just sort of add an overall, like, sense that, like, we are serious about this. Like, I think that makes a lot more sense than to go the the other way. Um, so I don't think, <laughs> I don't, I don't know how, how I was going to end that thought, but I will, I will just say this. I think it was smart to do it, um, that way rather than to go the other way. Yeah, and look, ESPN tried to do this too in their own fashion with these regional networks. And I know the athletic has hired a few people from, from those failed ESPN ventures too. So, but the local way is really smart, largely because it keeps costs down. You don't have to travel all over the place to cover games. You've got a staple of reporters covering locally and then writing remotely when they need to. And the the bet here is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kenny, but the bet here is that if I'm a fan in Detroit or Toronto or San Francisco or Chicago or wherever, and I feel that local newspaper coverage, which was my primary source of local sports news, is no longer fulfilling enough. There's not enough of it. It's not analytical enough. It's a little bit narrow. Um, I can get standings and results anywhere on the web. Then giving me something more substantive locally, more creative, that isn't dependent on the result of a game makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and that's happening. And I've read from the start of The Athletic some of the local baseball writers. I don't read anything but baseball pretty much. It's one of my failings in life. <laughs> but It's also I've the reason them. you're successful, Kevin. Well, right. But anyway, I've read them, um, and they bring more to the table than a lot of newspaper beat people, many of whom are quite good as well. So, yeah, that was the idea. And I can't speak for the founders, but my understanding is that the reason they decided to go national in part was because they saw an opening. They saw the opportunity to zig where others are zagging. Yeah. When guys – and women became available that weren't necessarily available six months ago. So, again, it's a bet, and no one can say with any certainty that this is going to work any more than people can say with any certainty that going to all video is going to work. No one seems to know, which is the problem here. But, again, I'll, I'll say it, and I'll say it again until I'm blue in the face. This is worth a shot. Kenny Rosenthal is the national baseball writer for The Athletic. You, of course, can continue to watch him on Fox Sports, in his bow tie, in the dugout, and on the MLB Network, and on Twitter. Follow Ken on Twitter if you want to know who's going to get traded. Kenny, thanks for coming on the show. Sure, Steph. Thank you, guys. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 
When Clay Travis reported last Tuesday on his blog, Outkick the Coverage, that ESPN had pulled an announcer named Robert Lee from calling a University of Virginia football game due to the controversy over the statue of Robert E. Lee, no relation, in Charlottesville, I thought there was maybe a 5% chance it was true. Travis, after all, had been writing for a very long time about bias at ESPN and how the sports network's ratings and profits were dwindling because it was too liberal, which is BS for reasons we will surely get into in a bit. In this case, though, it turned out Travis was right, at least about the fact that Lee had been pulled from the broadcast. In an internal memo, ESPN president John Skipper wrote that there was never any concern that Robert Lee's name would offend anyone, but that, quote, there was a question as to whether in these divisive times, Robert's assignment might create a distraction or even worse, expose him to social hectoring and trolling. Ah, yes, in these divisive times. In these divisive times, Travis and a couple of other folks, but mostly Clay Travis, have figured out how to make bank by exposing the alleged liberal bias of the sports media, in particular ESPN. Joining us now to discuss is Robert Lipsite, the columnist and essayist and novelist who served as ESPN's ombudsman in 2014 and 2015. Welcome back to the show, Bob. I'm glad to be here. So during your tenure as the ESPN ombudsman, you um, served the company in an era in which uh, Michael Sam kissed his boyfriend on draft day in this kind of historic celebratory moment. And you got a ton of messages from readers um, in a column in the Daily Beast written by Robert Silverman. I believe you said it was the most male you got on any subject. Um, in your mind, is was that the beginning of this notion that ESPN had turned liberal? Is ESPN's audience more conservative uh, than its uh, employees? Probably. Uh, I think that, that Michael Sam was, is a good starting point. So, uh, as a lot of very happy draft day guys do, uh, he kissed his partner. In his case, uh, it was a same-sex partner, and the kiss was longer than the one in The Princess Bride. And the ESPN camera, sensing this TV moment, kept on it forever. It really seemed like a very long time. So if you're uh, conservative or even if you feel that your family room where you uh, watch ESPN should be some sort of non-political sanctuary from any kind of social issues, I think that you might be upset. And um, it might be harder to explain to the kids you know, than the infield fly rule. But people so, should be explaining things other than the infield fly rule to their children. So good for ESPN for covering sports. And what ESPN does, as you've pointed out in the past, is that it follows celebrity. It's not following politics or controversy. Right. It, it's following celebrity. Michael Sam was a news media celebrity. Caitlyn Jenner was a Absol- news media celebrity. A very, yeah, yeah, but it was, a, it was a very long kiss and they stayed on it for a very long time in a kind of celebrity-driven, click-driven, provocative mm-hmm. way. And I can see 
that people who are uncomfortable uh, would complain, and right. they did. And the larger point from all of that is, and, and from what Clay Travis has done in the last week, is that it's a reflection of how easy it is to gin up a phony culture war. And in this especially, case, what Clay Travis is trying to do— if you're doing it on Fox, which is desperately— uh, trying to become competitive with ESPN. Right. This is right out of the right-wing playbook. And ultimately, what Clay, what ended up happening last week is that Clay Travis went on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox, along with Britt McHenry, another right-leaning ex-ESPN employee who was shamed publicly when she like ranted at a uh, parking lot attendant, a tote tow company attendant that was captured on video and that went viral a couple years ago. Well, why don't we just listen to a clip from that segment? But this is what ESPN does. This is why fans on both the left and right sides of the political spectrum have been abandoning the network because they aren't trustworthy. And because, like I said, they are MSESPN. They're using their ability to reach people through sports as an opportunity to become a left-leaning sports network. And it used to be Sports was dessert. It was the toy chest of life. It was where right. we all went to escape the serious things that confronted us every day. And now that's not the case anymore. It's like, I've got three kids, Tucker. If I tell them you got dessert when you finish this meal and then I give them broccoli, they're not going to be very happy. ESPN's giving us broccoli every single day and trying to sell it as dessert. It well, that's right. That's the frustrating thing. That's why I'm almost never offended by MSNBC, the real one, because they are what they say they are. And that's fine. They're the Leon Trotsky network. They act like it. I don't care. So there seems like there's this little cabal of right wing sports figures trying to create a sports culture war. Because it's effective. I, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it's, uh, it may be a little cabal in sports, but it's part of, as we know, a much larger cabal. So, Travis, let's talk about him for a minute. Um, I think you can certainly quibble with um, the guy's <laughs> journalistic instincts, but I think he is a marketing genius it's sort of surprising that it took so long for someone to figure out how effective these lines of attack would be. You know, Brian Curtis in that same Daily Beast piece I mentioned before, you know, connects it to reading National Review in the early aughts. And at that point, they were going after the New York Times and Dan Rather and CBS News. And so the fact that ESPN, this cultural behemoth, that it's been so long um, that, it, that it hadn't been put in this culture war is really shocking. And it's just been so effective for Travis. You know, he's talked openly about how anything he writes about for ESPN does major traffic for him. He also has a radio show where he talks about it ad nauseum. Um, is it surprising for you, Bob, that it took so long for somebody to figure this out? No, I, I think that it really had to be within a kind of context of the times where it's much more acceptable than it ever was before. I mean, um, you know, you, you've got the, the big coach is driving his golf cart you know, on the green. Uh, <laughs> the rules don't apply anymore. Uh, I, I don't think that it's, uh, I don't think it's surprising at all. I think it, it's in its time. And, and for God's sake, we're talking about the jerk. We are talking about the jerk. Sadly, um, the jerk has, has influenced and, and infiltrated. But you think 
Do you think we uh, can't talk about him? Do you think that it would be somehow irresponsible if we don't discuss Clay Travis? I don't think it'd be irresponsible. I think it's I think I think what he has done and what Jason Whitlock seems to be doing and in, in, in also yeah. trying to become part of this sort of opposition to the alleged sports liberal establishment is perfectly in keeping with the times. It's it's depressing that we're having this conversation, not because we shouldn't talk about politics and sports. We should. It's just depressing because it's so phony. Absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's turn. It's, as you said, it's marketing, brilliant or not. Uh, and it's, you know, getting him more clickbait. So some of Travis's other recent uh, scoops were the idea that LeBron James had, like, graffitied uh, racial slurs on his own property um, or, like, you know, <laughs> getting getting to the to the real truth behind that story. How could they have spray painted over it so quickly? Um, <laughs> he also was part of the group, including Tommy Laren, then of the Blaze, to just completely, uh, you know, spend weeks and months, and now going on more than a year of attacking uh, Colin Kaepernick for protesting the national anthem. And the interesting thing about um, Travis's posture there was, I can just remember in the early days of that protest that it wasn't just that he would write repeatedly about how stupid Colin Kaepernick was. Colin Kaepernick is an idiot was a repeated headline, but just how self-congratulatory he was and continues to be and saying like, you know, read and share this. I totally eviscerate Colin Kaepernick. And I think his independence, the fact that he, you know, does this show on Periscope, he shoots it himself. He's like kind of loosely affiliated, but not directly connected to Fox Sports. That part of his aesthetic is that he is this lone truth teller apart from big corporate media and that only he is telling people the truth and is not kind of circumscribed by political correctness. And I think we've seen that in so many different venues recently. And it's a really powerful thing that a lot of people buy into. You know, I, I think there's also an aspect of it that uh, progressive sports writers, and I would like to, you know, put myself in that group, uh, and certainly you guys, um, brought this on ourselves. I mean, for many, many years, as you remember, sports was supposed to be a, um, a, a sanctuary from politics of any kind. This was the place where we could get away from all that pain and divisiveness of real life. But we kept on insisting that it was part of real life, whether it was you know, labor politics within sports, whether it was racism or sexism in sports. You know, this, this had to be shown. And uh, ultimately, uh, the, the right wing you know, figured it out. Bob, if you hadn't spent all that time with Muhammad Ali, then Clay Travis wouldn't exist. <laughs> well... Um, so that, that's why I get to be on your show. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have made it otherwise. I mean, and before that, you know, as we talked about, you know, Dick Gregory, who was really my window 
uh, into uh, black America. Right. Tell us a little and, about your relationship with Gregory. We were talking before we got on the air. You wrote his biography, in autobiography right. in 1964. And, and, Tell and, and let's say it very clearly now. The name of the autobiography is not the N-word. The name of the autobiography is nigger. And the reason he wanted uh, that title was he thought that that was going to diffuse the word and uh, destroy it, of course. That never happened. And Gregory but, also uh, called for a boycott of the Olympics before people were doing that for, for, for on, on grounds Dick of Gregory, racial discrimination. Dick Gregory was a jock. Yeah. Dick Gregory was an athlete. He, um, he, he went to uh, Southern Illinois on a uh, track scholarship, and he became an activist because uh, in high school he set the, uh, the mile uh, schoolboy record, and it did not appear the next year uh, in the city's record book, because they did not consider, you know, Negro records admissible. And he marched to City Hall. And he wasn't marching to City Hall against racism. He was marching because, you know, this jock wanted his name in the record book. And that, of course, was the beginning of his activism. Um, and, you know, and, and he, he really saw Muhammad Ali as this baby of the universe, you know, who would bring so many truths to bear. Uh, they, were, they were very close for a while. Um, but, uh, and he, you know, I, and I, as I said, I, it's a real loss. He was a major mentor and teacher for me. And the idea that here was a guy who really sacrificed his career for the civil rights cause uh, you know, it was a kind of very important model. He would keep, uh, he would, he would break nightclub dates. You know, when he, he was kind of the hottest comedian in the country in 1964, and he would keep breaking dates because he felt that if he flew down to some, uh, Mississippi demonstration that the network news would follow and that would keep the demonstrators safe. But it would be harder to beat them up or kill them. Uh, if if uh, TV news was there, and and that's that's exactly what happened, and that's what happened uh, to his career, and he was beaten up, and he was shot, and uh, he he lost all that money, and uh, you know I think that his sincerity um, became really a beacon for so many other civil rights leaders. So to connect that to um, the conversation that we're having about today's media. What was the the kind of critique of figures like Ali and like Gregory back then um, from, you know, the conservative or reactionary side? How would you compare it to the critiques of somebody like Colin Kaepernick uh, today? Well, I mean, when you realize how uh, particularly Ali was dismissed uh, by the mainstream media early on, I mean, we're talking about you know, Red Smith, Jimmy Cannon, Arthur Daly, you know, the major columnists of their time, uh, you know, who uh, found them as disgusting uh, as the uh, unwashed hippies, you know, having naked proms. You know, I, always, I always wanted to be uh, invited to one of those, but uh, <laughs> having these uh, in 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 back rooms somewhere, and uh, as against the uh, you know the the, the kind of um, you know, 
the, the, the sports heroes that we could love and understand, you know, uh, the drunken Mickey Mantle uh, and, and such lovable boys. Um, and not, not to besmirk Mickey Mantle. I mean, he, he had his own demons. But uh, I, I think that this intrusion of any kind of real life or, or political life into sports was anathema uh, to the mainstream, and it was sold as being um, irresponsible and evil to their readers. Is it fair to say that the criticism now from the right is coming more from partisan media and less from, you know, the venerable columnists from... Stefan is uh, shrugging at me. No, no, no. Yeah, but, you know, don't you have the feeling that there are only partisan media now? I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know what, what's mainstream. Who's mainstream? I mean, uh, Christine Brennan at uh, USA Today, uh, pretty mainstream, but also in her way, I think, a, a progressive and uh, mm-hmm. responsible force. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have, uh, you know, the embrace, embrace debate guys, uh, you know, who are kind of selling this kind of craziness, maybe less on ideological basis, and more back to, you know, your line about marketing genius. But isn't, isn't, doesn't all of this just prove a point, which is that the media in 1964 railing against Ali or wanting to ignore Ali led to these issues being adopted into the way we cover sports. It shouldn't be shocking to anybody that Colin Kaepernick is a news story. So when someone like Sage Steele at ESPN says that she's not interested in talking about political stories or non-sports stories and she only wants to to talk about highlights and show them on SportsCenter, that seems completely out of step with the reality of what sports journalism has become. For more than half a century. For more than half a century. Yeah. Well, I mean, I never, I never quite got her anyway, but I guess she's not comfortable uh, or, or maybe not smart enough. I don't know uh, to, to deal with those issues in, in any kind of way. Uh, and then on the other hand, you, and you brought up Jason Whitlock, you know, who's kind of all over the place, uh, provocative and uh, sometimes interesting. Bob, do you think we're heading to a time where people with a sort of this conspiracy theoryish approach to ESPN and the mainstream media end up aggregating at a sports site or a network? Does Fox Sports become an adjunct of Fox News? Because as Clay Travis is proving, there's bank to be made here. No, I don't think we're heading towards it. I think we're already there. And uh, this is this is kind of just the beginning uh, of divisiveness within the country, reaching into every pocket of our lives. Uh, you know, there are so many things you can't really talk about with neighbors anymore. And I think that uh, the one thing that we always depended on was sports. And I am not sure we can do that anymore. Bob Lipsight was a longtime columnist for the New York Times, also was ESPN's ombudsman for two glorious years in 2014 and 2015. Always uh, great to talk to you, Bob. Thanks so much. Thanks again. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Now it is time for After Balls. And Stefan, your favorite part of the fight was the Irish national anthem, correct? Yeah. yeah oh, totally. Yeah. The Irish went first, then the, uh, the national anthem of the United States. They were Star-spangled good. banner, is it's that called? What it's called? Yeah. yeah. They, were, they, were, uh, they were going at it. It was a nice, a nice uh, sort of uh, America and Ireland have talent. <laughs> a soldier's song is the Irish anthem. The third verse begins, sons of the gale, men of the pale. The long watch day is breaking. The serried ranks of Innisfail shall set the tyrant quaking. Stefan, what is your men of pale? In May, the aforementioned Sage Steele of ESPN told our friend Dan Steinberg of the Washington Post that she was psyched about showing more highlights of things people had already seen on television. I'm an old school sportscaster. I love highlights. I'm kind of old school with that. Last week, she told radio host Dan Patrick, let's show some standings. Let's talk about what's coming up tonight. I'm just old, I guess, old school. The latter was an affirmation that her new gig as host of ESPN's morning news show would try as hard as it can to avoid talking about news, at least news that was not directly about people throwing and shooting and hitting and kicking objects of various shapes, because she's old school. How old school is she, Josh? Well, still last week, both sides, Colin Kaepernick's obvious blackballing, owners have a right not to sign him. In January, she Instagrammed her frustration with airport protesters of Trump's travel ban, And last year, she told Buccaneers wideout Mike Evans on Twitter to look up the definition of the word democracy after he took a knee during the national anthem. Don't be fooled by old school. It doesn't just mean traditional, as in old school short shorts or old school pine tar. The oldest sense of old school in the Oxford English Dictionary is holding conservative or traditional religious or political views, usually with capital letters, and that dates to 1816. The second and more modern sense is reflecting, exhibiting, or adhering to traditional values or old-fashioned ways outdated, no longer in vogue. That's the code of old school. It's not old-fashioned in a get-off-my-lawn way. It's old-fashioned in an Archie Bunker retrograde way, as in, I don't want to come right out and say it, but I disagree with change, with modernity, with progressive thinking, with anything that challenges my simple views. Sticking to sports, we saw some good old-fashioned old-schooling around Major League Baseball's creative and fun weekend of players wearing bright uniforms with nicknames on the back. Some players decided to wear colorful cleats with designs and messages. Not Diamondbacks reliever Andrew Chafin, who said he would wear his usual black cleats. I like the old school style of approaching things, he said. You put on your uniform, do your job, and come back and do it the next day. All the showboating stuff, I don't like it or care for it myself. Brett Gardner of the Yankees also was put off by all this personality and whimsy. I'm not that crazy about it, man. I'm more of an old school guy. Gardner chose to put his name on the back of his jersey, his last name. 
My historical research has led me to conclude that you can use the word asshole synonymously with old school in most cases. Let's try it. This is from a 1941 story in the Hartford Current. Phil Page, the manager of the Binghamton Triplets, is a personable young man as different from the old-school baseball manager as day and night. The Springfield pilot, a well-respected Eastern League pitcher a few years ago, is good-looking, quiet-spoken, and highly intelligent. He may be, for all I know, a two-fisted cusser when things go badly, but he certainly doesn't look the type. Here's one more, Josh, the earliest that I could find for old school baseball. This was written by Charles J. Doyle in the Pittsburgh Gazette Times in 1917. It's a game story. The crippled pirates led the fast giants into the ninth inning with the game at a drawn stage yesterday. But bad man Fletcher injected some old school baseball into the battle at the crucial period and victory was perched on the New York banner in less than five minutes. The score was three to one. So what was old school about what bad man Fletcher did? Well, he crowded the plate. He stood right up there. He has a habit of crowding the 17-inch rubber in emergencies, and the first ball that Steele threw brushed dangerously near his clothing. Doyle wrote referring to the pitcher Bob Steele. Quote, Fletcher threw down his bat and was about to start for first base, but umpire Bill Clem was watching the pitch closely and the bluff of the shortstop proved futile. He then picked up his bat under protest and he actually did take the next pitch on a convenient part of the anatomy. If that's not old school, I don't know what is. Josh, what's your men of pale? Two weeks ago, longtime Arkansas football coach and athletic director Frank Broyles died at the age of 92. Broyles, who coached Jimmy Johnson and Jerry Jones and a bunch of better players to an undefeated record in 1964, was remembered in his obituaries for, among other things, steering Arkansas out of the old Southwest Conference and into the money-printing SEC. What the obits did not mention is the part that Broyles played in a long-forgotten scheme by a long-forgotten con artist who preyed on coaches from the aforementioned and mostly forgotten Southwest Conference. In early September 1960, the AP and UPI reported that the FBI had brought wire fraud charges against a 27-year-old man named David Randy Riddle. Riddle, the UPI wrote, had been arrested for posing as a down-and-out employee of the Los Angeles Rams. The scam was that Riddle would call various football personages and say that he worked for the Rams and needed money to fix his broken down car. According to the FBI, this ruse succeeded in getting $25 from the father of L.A. Rams quarterback Bill Wade and a whopping $500 from the quarterback himself. That's a lot of car repairs. That's more than $4,000 in 2017 money. The only other person that Riddle successfully conned, again, according to the UPI, was Frank Broyles, who gave him 20 bucks. Among the coaches who didn't fall for it were Baylor's John Bridgers, SMU's Bill Meek, Texas Tech's DeWitt Weaver, and Texas A&M's Jim Myers. Even so, uh, I'm presuming that Arkansas fell for a lot of trick plays that year. But uh, regardless, Arkansas finished atop the SWC standings in 1960 with a 6-1 record, although they did fall to Duke in the Cotton Bowl by the score of 7-6. Never great when you lose to Duke in a football game. 
Riddle ultimately got caught, and he got caught thanks to University of Texas legend and apparent police informant Daryl Royal. The Longhorns coach reportedly got a call from Riddle, who asked him for $20 to fix his car. Royal, who'd heard tell of the scam, told Riddle he'd send the money to Western Union, then called the FBI to tell them where the perp would be picking up his cash. After Riddle's arrest, the UPI quoted him as saying, I'd rather go hungry than not get to read the sports pages. It's a great advertisement for, for the, sports for journalism. For the athletic. Yeah. <laughs> Two months later, he was sentenced to 13 months in federal prison. I stumbled across this story pretty much at random while looking through old newspaper clippings, and I haven't found anything written about it since 1961. I did find that the same guy, David Randall Riddle, was arrested in Indiana in 1954 for furnishing alcoholic beverages to minors. And in 1966, a David R. Riddle, who is the same age and lived in the same town and was thus almost certainly the same guy, struck and killed a pedestrian while driving a car in Illinois. According to public records, David Randall Riddle died in 1995 at the age of 61. In September of 1960, the UPI reported that he never got any closer to big-time football than playing on the high school B team in Cleveland, Tennessee. But that's not strictly true, given that in 1960, he chatted up at least six out of the eight head coaches from the Almighty Southwest Conference, and he got the one and only Frank Broyles to send him 20 whole American dollars. Why the Southwest Conference, though? Was he a fan? Why not the Pac-6 or whatever The Southwest it was Conference was king. And so if you're going to try to scam yeah. coaches, you're going for the top, going for the Southwest Conference. Maybe they were also the most neighborly. Southern hospitality. If you have a theory, please share it with us at hangupatslate.com. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. That email, again, hangup at slate.com. You should also check out Whistle Stop, John Dickerson's biweekly podcast on presidential campaign history. There's a whole big catalog of excellent episodes, among them ones on Mary Todd Lincoln's shady accounting during the Civil War and Gerald Ford's decision to pardon Richard Nixon. Resonance with the present day. To listen and subscribe, go to slate.com slash whistle stop. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.